Blaze Radio Network. And now, Chewing the Fat with Jeff Fisher. Welcome to Chewing the Fat. I know we're headed into Thanksgiving weekend, so I wanted to just share a couple of interviews that I did. and Fascinating interviews. Uh, this one is with Kara Cooney. Uh, the Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. And just sit back and listen to Kara as she, you know, describes, um, you know, the reasons why societies have so willingly chosen a dictator over democracy time and time again as she searches uh, throughout uh, every former king in the world. I want to be king. Kara Cooney. So the best-selling author, and I, you know, as it says here, dynamic speaker, professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA, uh, and specializing in, and one of the things that's listed in, in the specialization list is coffin studies. All right, so before we talk to you about your new book, The Good Kings, which I want to know if there actually is a good king um <laughs> what is coffin studies and how do i become a professor of it i know is that the coolest thing ever <laughs> you put a coffin in front of me and, and i can be like 19th dynasty 19 and a half 21st dynasty uh, that's I, know how to, awesome. I know how to do that that is um, awesome I, so I grew up in Houston, Texas, where things are super socially competitive, and people would display their ability to spend through cars and hair and eyeliner and, I don't know, different things, right? Yeah, and the that's ancient America. Egyptians did it with coffins. That's America, but that's Egypt, too. So they used coffins. We use cars and watches and handbags. What's the difference? So I look at coffins from the perspective of social competition, and I also look at coffins from the perspective of collapse, social collapse, because there's a time period known as the Bronze Age collapse when the Egyptian elite all start reusing coffins. Oh. And I am an, also an expert of coffin reuse. <laughs> Interesting. So do so, they, when they were reusing them, are we sweeping yeah. out the dust of whoever was there before us, or are we just putting you on yeah. top? No, you don't put them on top. Oh, How okay. could you do that? No, you, you try to hide what you're doing. Okay. So you take that old ancestor out and you put them to the side. And I bet you bring in a magician and a priest to make sure that the angry dead don't rise against you. Right. And then you take that coffin out or coffin set because these are nesting coffin sets. And you update it. Like we update our kitchens and our bathrooms. And when we update our kitchens and our bathrooms, somebody comes in and they're like, well, that's asbestos tile. You don't want to touch that. And so you're like, fine, we'll cover over it. Right. right. And in the same way with coffins i see a stratigraphy i'm like oops look you can see they went over this decoration here and then wow. they removed a bit of wood there and and so i look at a coffin kind of like an archaeological that's interesting you know we find so much yeah. i know uh i know you're uh you know you have your show on netflix uh, out of egypt and uh, your other books when women ruled the world um you know i remember talking to you about that but one of the things that we're finding almost I don't know, uh, pr probably in your world daily, but for sure yeah. yearly, we find out new information about the past, about our Egyptian ancestors that we didn't know before that, I mean, amazingly, science evolves, doesn't it? It's true. We, we test theories, we get new information, we update it. Yeah. It's extraordinary how that happens. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. So your latest book, uh, The Good Kings, 
um, absolute power in ancient Egypt and in the modern world. Um, first, seriously, my first question, really, was there a good king? It's a sly title. You know that it's, it's a sly title. It's, it's attempting to tell you what you already know, which is that the ancient Egyptians were the best at packaging they should have been like advertising PR guys. I mean, they, they package an authoritarian leader to not only seem necessary, but to seem moral and good as the best way forward. And it, it was so successful that this regime lasted for 3,000 years. Yes, it had its ups and downs, and that's what I outline in more detail in the book. But it's, it was able to remake itself again and again and again. And that is seductive to us and our sad little 250 years of america right well and and really i mean i know it's a sad little 250 years but it was a pretty uh, productive 250 years uh, as far as the planet goes um so yes that's, that's <laughs> at the end of the book that's the last chapter you, <laughs> so um with the kings that you're following here in your book is there which, which one is your favorite i mean is there one that stands out that says that's that's the guy or the girl is that's the guy or the that's the king we'll just use the we'll use the yeah. we'll use the term that's the king that's the one we need to uh we need to follow there are two that I think we need to look at more than any other. And the first one is Akhenaten, who, who created a new religious system that is fanatical and arguably monotheistic. Akhenaten. Set up his Akhenaten that set up his rule very well. And I compare his ideology to the rise of Christian evangelical ideology here, Orthodox Judaism in Israel, Orthodox Christianity in Putin's Russia. You know, there's all kinds of ideologies that one can choose from. Right. But the, the able leader that chooses an ideology that is binary, where it's black or white, you're with me or against me, is very useful for a leader. And so I talk yeah. about all of those things in the Akhenaten chapter. And then there's Ramses the populist. And, and I think that we've, we know exactly what that means. Um, how you drive a wedge between your elites and your people, but your elites are still participating in in using the people, however you understand that base, right. to to buoy a leader and to to um, use your own celebrity to create a, a new kind of of kingship or a new kind of rule. I, I mean, we're seeing. I mean, we see that being replayed over and over again. Right? Mm -hmm. it's just that some don't do it as well as others. Um, Some, you know, yeah, but, you know, the last president, he did it very well. Yeah, he, he did. Pop, he's still doing populism well, even when he's not president. Um, never underestimate a good populist leader who knows how to connect to his base. Um, it, 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 do so at your peril. <laughs> right. But the, one of the things that, um, you know, at least has changed in our minor 250 years here on the planet is that we uh you know we hopefully have evolved from that kingship right i mean we still obviously look upon kings for whatever reason as these uh, i don't know these glorious beings when they really weren't i mean that's why we started the united states yeah i mean here's what i'm trying to mess with right so you look and you say well we don't have a king 
And I ask you, well, so you don't think you have a king? And I, and, and I can say... No, yes, I don't, Karakuni. No, no, we don't. <laughs> I can say technically we don't have a king. But when you're looking at the patriarchal system... It is. It is the same. It is the same thing. I mean, our democracy is a pay-to-play oligarchy, and it's not majority rules. It's minority rules, and it's becoming worse. And yeah, those, sure. those, that minority is entrenching that that corporate-run, elite-run system, such that we can have a billionaire on in, in from our country that is worth three hundred billion dollars. That's Jeff Bezos. That's, I mean, where's your king? Maybe there's not one guy, maybe, but there's, there is still an extraordinary unequal distribution of power and resources that is, um, that is highly problematic. So, well, so I would disagree <laughs> completely. <laughs> <laughs> but when we built this uh, democratic republic not just a democracy uh we built it with the you know with at least that thought of oh you know you could if you say that okay so the 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 hundred billionaire is the king um you know at least i still have a shot to become a hundred billionaire right so i mean i still have a shot to be king you know how the ancient egyptians they have their their nilometers to measure the Nile and its prosperity. They have ways of connecting the heavens and the earth. They have all their temples as machines of the universe. Well, we have our ideology, and our ideology, I feel, is actually democracy. (laughs) I think that USAID feels good giving money to countries when they have elections. Whether they're free and fair is up for argument. But we surround ourselves in this ideology of democracy so that we don't have to see the reality we want to live the fiction. And Mm. I I think that we can see it in Egypt because it's so strange and different, but we cannot see it in our own system. That's why I'm bringing Egypt in to shock us all into seeing it. It's easy to see for them, but for us, we're like, no, no, we have a democracy and they invented this. The Declaration of Independence is so beautiful. Look at our Constitution and look at how well it works. Yeah, is wow. it working? How does it work? And when it was created, how well did it work for black Americans who were, or indigenous Americans whose um, rights were very differently understood in, in those documents, as written in those documents? Mm-hmm. And those, you know, these are the kinds of things that I'm, that I'm messing with because both systems are patriarchal systems of smash and grab, hoard the resources, get as much power as you possibly can. Those systems remake themselves with different ideologies every time. For the ancient Egyptians, it was Osiris and Ma'at and Re. For us, it's democracy and the IMF. But what's, what's the difference, really? And you brought up the planet, right? The, yeah. the rate we're going with all of this smash and grab, rape the earth kind of way, th- there is now a giant barrier in our way. And that barrier is the earth. The earth is, is like, mm-mm. <laughs> you have reached the limit. Your, your air will soon be poisoned with so I much carbon dioxide. That, that, and I, the, I don't yeah. know if that's true. I mean, the earth takes care of herself. Uh, we do adjust yes, as humans. Can. We do adjust as humans. We adapt. 
things change, right? I mean, you see that all the time when you, you know, when you, when you first started, uh, you know, wiping the brush across the remains of the desert in Egypt, uh, you had an idea of what was going on. And now, think how but far there that was. There wasn't eight billion people on the planet. There's now uh, eight billion. People and we're fine. There's still Are plenty. We? Of, we're still plenty of room. Yes. There's still plenty of room. We absolutely are. Absolutely. So this is the discussion that we have going forward. We're, there are people who are so enmeshed with the system that we have lived for 10,000 years as human beings that they see no problem with it because they're dug into the success of that system. And there are a majority of people who are working their three jobs in their gig economy reality, who are being exploited by that system, and who live near a freeway and who don't see that the earth is as resilient as, as some think it is. And this is, um, it's, it's going to be an interesting way forward, and I think it's the next 100 to 200 years of human history. This is the tension that we will have. Mm, okay. All right. I was told in my ear to be nice, so I'm going to. Kara Cooney? <laughs> uh, I, I it was really fascinating. I love uh, the idea behind the Good Kings, and uh, your uh, your series out of Egypt is fantastic. Of course, your latest book, The Good Kings: Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. One of the uh, uh, big takeaways from the Good Kings is, uh, you know, we're saying that we we're 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 following down the King Road, but I mean, we have an opportunity to take another path, do we not? There's always the opportunity to take another path. Human beings don't like change. Human beings only change when they have to. So if human beings can remake the path exactly as they have, even after a collapse, they will. But this is my point. I think that we're reaching... A, a lack of steady state, a lack of diminishing returns in which human beings will not be able to just recreate the patriarchal system again. There, there are too many obstacles in its way. And this is the other, and the last chapter goes into this, that we're now deciding to throw off that kingship in all kinds of ways. And you see it happening when people decide not to get married, not to have kids, not to be binary, um, when the female in the party is the breadwinner. All kinds of things are topsy-turvy from the perspective of a patriarchal system. And people at the bottom of society are making their decisions in opposition to this patriarchal reality. And then you have laws being passed in Texas where pregnancy is, is forced upon women whether they want it or not. And all kinds of other things that try to put they things... They could out. decide to go in another direction prior to that. Uh, they, I see if we're going to go <laughs> yes. in another direction, I think it will have to be forced upon us. And I think that human beings are very good at short-term thinking. Long-term thinking, they're not so good at. So a giant system change, which is what I think we're going through. I think everyone right and left agrees that we, we humanity, we human beings are going through something. And if we're going to go through a giant system change, that change will work upon us more than we work that change. And it'll be an interesting thing to see what happens. It will be interesting. End. 
It will be interesting. I'll give you that. Kara Cooney, thank you so much for joining me on Chewing the Fat today. The book is available uh, wherever you get your books, and I'm sure that uh, you have a special website that they can go to to pick up the book and to find out more information about you. And that is? It's my Squarespace page. Just Google Kara Cooney, Kara with the K, Cooney with the C, and you will find me. And I'm also on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter, and I just started a podcast called Afterlives with Kara Cooney. Thank you. Thank you. Then I had an opportunity to talk to Ann Williams, who wrote Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, and it chronicles astonishing discoveries from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Lost City of the Monkey God. We'll definitely ask Ann about that. Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs. Tombs is the latest book from Ann R. Williams, who has been writing about the ancient world and cultural heritage preservation for many years for National Geographic. And as you start going through these books, you realize how much really has our knowledge has changed over the the last. Well, it, it says here in your bio, a three decade career with National Geographic and welcome to the show. And so in those 30 years. I mean, we've learned so much and so much has changed. What right now, just out of the box, for before we even get into the book, what's the biggest thing that's changed for you in those 30 years? When you look back today and you go, wow, I can't believe I believed that then. And now look at what I believe. Well, um, I think one. <laughs> I think one of the exciting things um, that um, that has captured my attention and the attention of a lot of archaeologists is the fact that technology is really taking archaeology into a new place. Um, and there is the, um, um, a list, uh, a short list of some of those technologies at the end of the book that I hope you're now holding. Um, In my grubby little hands, technologies as we speak. Like, sorry? In my hands, as we speak. Very good. So there are all sorts of technologies like LIDAR, for instance, um, that are allowing archaeologists to make discoveries in a way that never could have been imagined 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, just astonishing stuff. Um, so everything from LIDAR and sat- reading satellite images to strontium isotope analysis and, you know, a whole bunch of other sort of high-tech right. stuff. Um, but um, I think we are, because of all those technologies, we're entering a new era of discovery in archaeology yeah. that is starting out to be very exciting. What's your favorite new find? Favorite new find? Yeah, your favorite new find. Because we've, I know we're going back over some of the old finds, right? And we're finding. Uh, we're finding new information about the old finds that are, you know, adding to or changing a little bit of our perspective on what was done and what was meant. But what's the what's the biggest new find that you that you're happy about? Well, I think there were two. 
two chapters in this book that are new excavations that um, really rewrite history in different ways. There is a pre-Columbian site in Panama, about an hour and a half drive west of Panama City. It's a site called El Caño. Um, The lead archaeologist is a woman named Julia Mayo. She thought that she could kind of figure out through reading old texts and doing um, magnetometry in um, in a certain place, she thought that she had identified the graves of um, of high pre-Columbian Panamanian chieftains. Wow. Um, and she dug down 16 feet below the ground level, and she found the chieftains, and they were just blinged out, you know, covered <laughs> in gold. Pectorals, arm cuffs, earrings, belts with beads the size of huge olives. I mean, it wow. was just extraordinary. Now... It's not only that discovery, it's what that discovery means. So for decades and generations, archaeologists had sort of thought that there was really nothing between the Maya in the Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala area, um, the Maya and their stone pyramids, and the Inca down in South America. And, you know, all of that stuff between, it was just rainforest and there wasn't anything there, they thought. Right. And so they didn't look. Right. But Julia Maya was one of the people who was starting to look. And, of course, she's, she found stuff. Sure. So I think what that says to us is, you know, as scientists, we have to remind ourselves that just because um, an ancient civilization had a material culture that was biodegradable, does not mean that their civilization was not sophisticated. Um, and that is what Julia has found. Um, yeah, plus 16 feet down. It's not only history rewriting, it's paradigm rewriting. Plus, you, you meant 16 feet down. That seems uh, not as deep as I would have anticipated. I mean, well, that, that, uh, believe me. After having climbed <laughs> up and down the stairs to the bottom of the site many times, myself, I can enough. tell you it's a fair, a fair depth. <laughs> right, I, I get that. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Now the other thing, the other site in that category, I would say, is a site called. Now I don't pronounce this very well. It's in Yupik, which is an Alaskan language, but the site is called um, Nunaksuk. Um, it was a site that in the mid-1600s was attacked, um, and the main communal shelter where about 50 people lived burnt, um, and the site was abandoned. Now, what has happened is with global climate change, um, all of that site has been locked in permafrost since you know, the mid-1600s, until quite recently. And the permafrost is melting. At the same time, the land is subsiding, and the Bering Sea is rising. This is a site right on the coast of the Bering Sea in southwestern Alaska. And um, the, there, there is a village nearby, still Yupik people. Um, it's called Quinhuk, and they started to see... Um, during winter storms, the front side of this site where their ancestors had lived um, was being eroded away. And they called in archaeologists, and they partnered with the archaeologists, gave the archaeologists t- 
tons of support um, and learned how to dig themselves, and everybody pitched in, and they have been bringing up the most extraordinary things out of literally the melting permafrost or thawing permafrost. I mean, we're getting that up. Again, are all biodegradable. It's carved caribou antlers, um, walrus ivory. It's basketry from grasses, woven from baskets, um, grass that was cut um, in the 1600s. Really just extraordinary. And the archaeologists who are working on that are just absolutely top-notch. And it's rewriting what we knew right. about um, that period of time in, um, in the, the pre-European um, history of Alaska. Which is awesome. I mean, we're getting some of uh, some new things because of the melting perma- with the permafrost around the world, not only in Alaska, which is fantastic. So, Your Lost Cities, the latest book, uh, Ancient Tombs. I know that uh, we have the legend of Troy and the Black Pharaohs and, uh, you know, the Lost Temple. I, let's, let's talk a little bit about what's the Lost Temple of the Monkey God? Well, this is a wonderful example of what technology is doing in the field of archaeology. So this was an expedition, and it came out of a LIDAR study. So for those people who don't know about LIDAR, you do LIDAR from an airplane. Um, You fly over usually a rainforest canopy with a special camera, and you take a whole bunch of photographs, and then back home, you plug that into a computer, and you use special software. And, you know, computers are endlessly patient. Um, And what the computer does in this case is it peers through all the spaces between all the leaves in the rainforest canopy to identify any trace of something. Right. And then kind of fills in the gaps. So you end up... And you want to talk about fun. And you want to talk about really fun. Interesting that picture sounds like fun. Of what's yeah. on the ground. Yeah. So then you have to, you do what we call ground truthing in archaeology. Okay. You see technology, but you go, yeah, yeah, I got to see it with my own eyes. Right. And that's what that expedition was about. They were checking it out. And sure enough, there were temples, there were sculptures, there Incredible. were pottery. I mean, a whole, a whole lost civilization, and we don't even know their names. But thanks to technology. Well, we know. Are we going in now, or are we? Have we just know that it was there, and thanks to lidar, and we're we're just kind of leaving it alone, or have we gone in? Well, there was an expedition that went in. Doug Preston, who wrote the introduction to this book, was in the expedition that went in okay. to ground truth it. Now, what happens to that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, that is up to the hunter and government. It, it is their site. Um, it's under their purview, and they get to decide what happens to it. How much as the, how much as the, you know, since we're still, you know, we're coming out of, uh, you know, the worldwide global pandemic, how much has that hurt your business? I mean, my gosh, that's got to have been a struggle the last year, year and a half. 
Well, it's sort of uh, good things and bad things. Um, the bad thing is that it has shut down a lot of excavation. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's just not safe. Um, on the other hand, um, when you are excavating, there's always a balance that you have to strike between excavating on the one hand, which is one skill set, and writing up what you found, which is a completely different skill set. And in fact, in all honesty, I would have to say that there have been very famous archaeologists in the past who were not very good note takers. <laughs> so they have excavated very famous sites and not left us a whole lot of clues right. um, about what was going on. Um, but um, archaeologists have used this pandemic pause um, to a lot of them uh, to get caught up and have done a lot of publishing. Oh, so um, that is good. I, you know, that's what happened to me. I, I never would have written this book if there hadn't been this pandemic pause. Right. So, I mean, that, that is good, right? I mean, the latest book, Lost yeah. Cities, Ancient Tombs uh, by Anne. So what's next? All right, so we've got uh, Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, and you obviously told us, you know, you wrote this because of the pandemic, and you've been catching up on all your note-taking, along with all the other archaeologists across the globe. So what's next for Anne Williams after 30 years of traversing the globe and looking at sites? Are you done? You call it, you're hanging up the cleats? What are you doing? No. <laughs> so as we speak, I am working on a new book. The working title is Treasures of Egypt. I am deeply immersed in the land of the pharaohs. And, um, yeah, that should be out next year at this time. Awesome. Um, I also, this summer went to an online scribal school where I learned ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, um, which has helped me enormously um, to be, I think, a better interpreter for this new book that's coming up. That's awesome. um, for instance, I saw that there was a photograph. It looked kind of funky. I couldn't read the king's name. I saw it in the cartouche, you know, that oval. And then I realized that, well, I couldn't read the cartouches because... The photograph was upside down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of funny, actually. Um, so, uh, Anne, I thank you for your time. The latest book is Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs. Uh, it has been uh, fascinating as I'm getting into it, and I'm looking forward. I hadn't made it to uh, the monkey god uh, yet, and so I'm looking forward to that. Anne Williams, thank you very much for joining me on Chewing the Fat today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Chewing the Fat today. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend. Enjoy all your family members that you can enjoy. And if there's some of the family members that you don't enjoy, give them a hug, throw them a turkey bone, and just tell them, Happy Thanksgiving, get out. No, that's not what you're supposed to do? No? Okay. Well, have a happy Thanksgiving anyway. Thanks for listening to Chewing the Fat. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.